Good morning. How are you? You all sound, you all sound so wide awake. Is it is it the rain? <laughs> but you know, this is the time when we need the rain for all the the plants and the vegetables and you know, those wonderful trees that have been fruiting and flowering and putting all that wonderful pollen in the air for us. It's great to have the rain to wash it out. Well, I'm glad to be back with you this week. I've had some family obligations the last couple weekends, and so I was really grateful for Gilbert to launch the series. Uh, I understand that he didn't explain a whole lot. Uh, I saw him earlier this week, and he said, I didn't tell him anything. Um, He said, I just, you know, I teed everything up from what we discussed, and I just kind of left a bunch of things hanging that you'd now have to pick up. So uh, I was well prepared on Monday that I'd have some heavy lifting to do throughout the rest of the series, Uh, but actually it's the way we planned it, so (laughs) we're good. Uh, but uh, Gilbert and Lisa are off having a uh, you know, wonderful trip, so we're, we're glad that they are getting this break, and uh, I'm glad to be able to be here with you this morning. Positive deviance. Doesn't sound like a phrase that uh, those two words should go together. As a matter of fact, when the, first, the term was first used, it was one of those terms that sort of all kinds of branches of society looked at it and went, um, what exactly do you mean by that? Because deviance is typically what? Deviance is typically, or it's, it's typically connected to abnormal behavior that is away from what is considered the norm and usually good. And then positive, we're like, well, okay, so positive, we get that, you know, which, that means it's good, whatever. Well, let me tell you where the, the, the term came from. There were some anthropological studies done to find out why when different aid would go into third world countries or places where disasters happened. And they would, they would start to notice that the same care, the same supplies, the same food, the same resources were brought into care for people. But they started to see that certain families would get healthier sooner or they get stronger sooner. They get on their feet a little bit sooner. And so they started to pay attention to that and say, no, wait a minute. They're, they're all having access to the same resources, but they're not all progressing at the same rate. Is this just them? Is it just a a developmental thing? Or is there more to it? Is there a habit? Is there something that's going on behind the scenes that we can't see that that, that this, this family is doing that this family isn't? And sure enough, as they observed and as they watched these families, I'll give you one simple example. Soup. Okay? Soup. They started watching the food lines, and they started watching the trends of these families that were progressing faster and getting healthier faster, and they noticed when these families went through the food lines, everybody else would come through the food line, and they would take the ladle, and they would just kind of scoop from the top, and they would fill their bowl, and they would move on to the next bit of food. But the families that were progressing more rapidly they noticed that they took the ladle all the way to the bottom of the, of the pot and stirred it. And they got all the heavy stuff up off the bottom, and then they would put it into their bowl. Nobody told them to do that. Nobody prompted them to do that. They just naturally did it because whether they recognized it or not, the more nutritious food was heavier, it was more dense, and it sank to the bottom of the pot. And so these families that were progressing more rapidly, it was just a habit of them stirring the pot and then pulling it into their bowl, made a huge difference in their nutrition. 
and in their kids' nutrition. And the families that just kind of stirred the top and put it into their bowl, they weren't getting all of the meat and the potatoes and the things that would sink to the bottom. Does that make sense? And so out of this, they started to watch more and more behaviors like that, and they said, you know what, this is positive deviance. This is, this is a behavior that is altered from the norm, but it's having a positive impact. impact. Nobody cooked it up. Nobody gave them life coaching you know, material to say, hey, when you, when you eat soup, you should really stir the bottom of the pot. But it was, it was just a deviant behavior that they went, oh, my goodness, this has a great result. So then they started to teach other people in the village, hey, when you come for soup, make sure you, you stir the bottom and get some of that good stuff that's sitting on the bottom of the pot. So when we were talking about positive deviance as a series, we said, you know, what are, those, what are those pro tips? What are those things that Jesus brings along and says, hey, guys, I, I know you've heard this or you've seen this, but I tell you. There's pro tips where he says, you know what, let's just take the ladle to the bottom of the pot, get some of that meat and potatoes, bring it up, and make sure that we understand what God expects of us so that when we live our life, we can, we can see where it's us and where God is showing up because we've made ourselves available to him. Follow me so far? Does that connect some of the dots from what Gilbert shared last week? Good, then I'm on track. It's <laughs> great to know. All right, so I want to share with you the, the next one that we're looking at. It's in Matthew chapter 5, and it's very short. It's just a few verses, verses 38 through 42. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. Here it is, and I'm going to, well, I'm going to read it from there. Uh, so you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you to take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. When you hear that, there's a part of it that makes sense right away. It's kind of like the surface soup, right? There's, there's a part of that that makes sense right away, that we shouldn't be just out, like, whacking people, you know, like, you did wrong. But, you know, we, we got there somehow. Like, the, there's, there's more going on behind the scenes of that than what we realize. And I want to I unpack a piece of that. The other part of it seems really, really awkward to us. As I imagine it must have been for the families who had to learn to dip to the bottom of the pot. There's a piece of it that's awkward because when we think of someone who asks more of us than what we feel we have or does something that demands more of us than what we're capable of giving, our, our first thought is not charity. Our first thought is not graciousness. Our first thought is what? Back, back up, Right? The, the, there's three times that the phrase, if, if we go back to where Jesus is pulling this from, before I, before I go to the Pharisees and how they were using it, there's three times the phrase eye for an eye is mentioned. Once is in Exodus, once is in Leviticus, and once is in Deuteronomy. One of them is in the context of injuring a pregnant woman. Uh, it's in the context of a bunch of little societal, social things, and it says in the context of, of injuring a pregnant woman if the child is killed. Um, as a result of the actions, then, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Um, one of them is in regards to general justice and making sure that people understand 
that there needs to be justice in place because if, there's no, if there is no sense of justice in society, people will just do whatever they please and hurt people. And so there has to be a, a, an understanding of, of action and consequence. And the other one was, once, uh, it was mentioned once in regard to injuring your neighbor specifically. You know, and so it goes kind of from the general justice to more specifically living in your own neighborhood. Uh, if you're poking your neighbor in the eye every day, it's probably not going to be, a, you know, there's going to be a fence up pretty quick. You know, it's not going to be a really good living arrangement between you and your neighbor. So across those three times, though, what's happening in the Old Testament when that phrase is used is it was meant, it was meant to bring equality to a situation where there was inequality because of harm that was done, but the goal was restoration and reconciliation. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. So if somebody, if you, uh, let's, let's say, um, George, I like picking on you. I, you knew it was coming to you. And you, you, happen to be, you happen to be wearing a shirt that is very similar to one I used to have, so that's why you've got my attention today. Um, so let's say George is out digging a hole in his yard, uh, or, or let's just say it's in, the, in, in a field nearby, and it's a shared, it's a public field, right? So George is out digging a hole in a public field, and I'm bringing my pet cow through, because, you know, I keep a pet cow. Um, <laughs> But as I'm walking my pet cow, it stumbles into the hole that George has been digging, and it breaks its legs. I know, that's gruesome. The poor cow. You know, so we got... um, And so, come on, this is serious stuff. What are you laughing about? It's it's an injured cow. Have some compassion. So so the, the cow is hurt. The cow probably has to be put down. Well, that cow was valuable to me because, you know, we don't, I didn't tell you whether it was a dairy cow or a meat cow. It doesn't really matter. But somehow it has some intrinsic value to my family, if not just as a pet, because I like cows. Um, but George has dug this hole. Well, George is the primary cause of why my cow is now injured and needs to be killed. And so these verses in the Old Testament were designed for situations like this to say, okay, George didn't mean to kill your cow. He didn't mean to hurt your cow, but he was negligent. And, and as a result of his actions, there's an inequity here. You have now lost way more than George has. And it's probably more than what George could possibly restore value-wise to your family. But the highest priority is reconciliation of your relationship. And so the law was put in place to say, okay, you injured my cow, offer me something of equal value, or at least attempt to, to provide something of value as compensation for the cow. George would keep the cow. I would get something to reimburse me. And then it was designed to give us a place where George and I could then work out our relationship and still stay nice to each other in community, still love each other in community. Do you understand? That's the context these laws came into and the purpose that they were given. By the time you come to Jesus' day, it's no longer that way. It's no longer that way. Before I go into what the Pharisees did, let me ask you a question. If you had to make a choice between what is more important, fairness or consistency, which would you choose? You can call it out. This is... Consistency. Anybody say fairness? Okay. 
So why fairness? Okay. So why consistency? Yeah, so you're picking up on something. You're picking up on something, aren't you? See, fair, we like the word fair, right? The word fair is like, because we use that a lot. When something happens that we disagree with or it doesn't feel right to us, that's not, thank you. It's in us, you know, from like age two on, you know, it's just, that's not fair. But the problem is when you're an adult, that language doesn't work so well. Because there's some other things we learn as we mature. And as we mature, we begin to realize that moment-to-moment fairness is not always what's best. For example, if you have cavities and your sibling doesn't, and they brush their teeth and you don't, and candy is given to your sibling who brushes their teeth and doesn't have cavities, and you say, that's not fair... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the tr- spoken like a true parent, you should have brushed your teeth, you know, because, and now we've moved from fairness to what? Consistency, because now we're saying special treats and rewards come when you have a certain demonstrated behavior that is good for you and that I'm okay rewarding you. But if you're already doing things that are unhealthy for you, I'm not going to add unhealth to you with a treat, especially something like candy. See, we get this. We start to understand this. Here's the, here's the issue. Fairness, fairness says everyone gets the same result. Consistency says everyone has the same opportunity. You can see the difference, right? Go back to my example I opened with, with the soup. Okay, somebody could have stood there and made sure that they served everybody from the bottom of the pot, right? That we would have called fairness. But what does the person who has the opportunity to feed themselves learn? Nothing. Because unless they're actually paying attention to the person serving the soup, their only interest is what? I got my soup, right? I got my result. But consistency says, you know what? It's not enough for me to simply serve you soup in the way that I know is healthiest. It's more important for me to teach you how to to dig in and get, get the good. Because the next time you're in a situation like that and I'm not around to help you see what is the healthiest thing to do, what are you gonna what are you gonna think about? You're at least gonna have the thought. Whether you take the action or not, you're at least gonna have the thought, and you're gonna do what? You're gonna say, oh, it might be more healthy if I dig to the bottom. That's the difference between fairness and consistency. Consistency says, okay, we may get a different result because you, as a human being, you have choice. You have the freedom to choose. But at least, at least you've been equipped to be able to make a good choice. Fairness says, you don't really have a choice. We're just going to make sure you get the same thing everybody else gets. Which, on the front end, that sort of sounds exciting until you start to realize, I really don't have any choice anymore. And so you can't exceed, you can't reach a certain level of potential. You can only reach whatever the fairness dictates. Follow me? So that brings us to the very next point. There's a difference 
in how we think when we think about fairness versus consistency. And I know we're going we're gonna to go into, we're going into points before we get too deep into the Pharisees. I'm, I'm coming back to them, I promise. So if we're always in fairness thinking, fairness is minimum requirement type thinking. And when I'm in minimum requirement type thinking, I short circuit my maximum potential. So we're going to pause and I want to unpack a little bit for you. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were the heroes of the day. So, you know, and, and you've, you've heard over the, to- over the last several months as we've been teaching through all of Scripture and you, you, we've hit the New Testament, we've been hitting some of the teachings of, teachings of Jesus, that you've heard us kind of rail on the Pharisees every now and then that they missed it, they, they got it wrong, they had too many rules, blah, 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 blah. You have to understand how they got in that position. They were the heroes. When, when the Jews came out of the diaspora, when they, were, when they came back from being spread all over the world, and, and God brought them back and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to restore you to your land. I'm going to restore you as a people. They came back from Babylon concerned about how do we never go back there again? And so the Pharisees were really that class of people. They were the religious leaders who were set apart, and their job was to figure out how do we never break the rules again? And so initially, their job was very noble. It was very exciting because they got to be the ones to wrestle through all those heavy theological concepts. And then they could tell everybody else, hey, you know what? We figured this out. Don't till on the Sabbath means don't work the plow. Well, okay, so then somebody figured out they didn't have to touch the plow. They could release their animals. Or they figured out they, if they had enough spit, they could, you know. And it was like, okay, all right, all right, so we got to back up. And what started to happen was then they began to create all these rules inside of the rules, inside of the rules, inside of the rules to try and keep people from falling across the actual rule. To the point where if you spit on a rock on the Sabbath, that was okay. But if you spit on the ground, it was tilling the soils. Gilbert shared that one. If you pick up your child on the Sabbath, that was okay, but if your child was holding a piece of fruit from your orchard, that was doing work. It became ridiculous. But you have to understand the culture. They were the heroes. Whenever they told a parable, so for those of you who know the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the guy gets beat up alongside the road, and along comes a priest, along comes a Levi, and then normally the hero of the story would be, and along came a Pharisee. And that shocks us because we're not used to hearing the story told that way, but it would normally be there along came a Pharisee, and the Pharisee would be the one to save the day because the Pharisee's job was to show us how deep to dip into the pot to get the right vegetables and meat and potatoes. That was their job. But by the time Jesus comes on the scene, all of these secondary and third level and fourth level and fifth level rules that have been thought up by the Pharisees to keep people inside the boundaries were starting to get in the way. They were starting to actually destroy what I shared with you earlier. This whole idea of eye for an eye was meant to bring reconciliation. It was meant to clear the slate. By the time Jesus comes along, what started out as a noble principle, (laughs) what started out as 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 a opportunity for maximum potential in community together 
where we're not letting any barriers or any boundaries or any faults or flaws or, or oopses get in our way, that we are going to reach our maximum potential as a community. What started out there began to become minimum requirement thinking. I have been offended. I have been hurt. You have done something to me. Therefore, I get to extract from you my justice. In our culture, we say, I get my pound of, (laughs) see, you know, I get my pound of flesh. You see how it turned on its head? And it didn't take much. It didn't take much. All it took was a shift of focus from saying, the purpose of this is to restore and and reconcile. All it took was a shift from that to say, you have wronged me, therefore I am owed. The sad part of this kind of thinking is it leads to the exact opposite of reconciliation. It leads to vicious, vicious division. You've damaged my eye. I get to come damage yours. But I didn't mean to. doesn't matter. You wronged me. I don't care what your intent was. I'm offended, therefore I get to strike you. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It sounds like the world we're living in. The kind of thinking of minimum requirement thinking, the the vicious division, the entitlement that comes leads directly to this idea of whatever I feel I'm owed from you, I get to extract from you. I have a right to it. I don't know if any of you heard the preview song uh, when the countdown was going on, that song by Lecrae. Man, I heard that this week, and I sent it to Gilbert. I was like, man, because that line that he said, when we, when we, whenever we fight for our rights, we belong in hell. It, it, we might end up in hell. And it was like, Whoa, I immediately understood what he meant. He's talking about this. He's not talking about, you know, that that God created us as unique individuals, and so there are certain things that he has intended for us, and that those are the rights that he has given us. That's different. It's when we fight for what we feel we are entitled to. This is my right. That's when we are in danger of hell, because that is when we begin to say, The law, the rules, everything bends around what I feel, not what's actually true. And that's a very dangerous place to live. When everything circles around us and what we feel, it makes it very hard to have reconciliation. Because there is no middle ground at that point. It's either your ground or my ground, right? I share with you the Pharisees were the heroes. They were held up as the examples. Their job was to keep God's wrath at bay and to help people know how to be reconciled to one another and to God. The problem was the Pharisees got in the habit of deepening the minimum requirements. And they taught it in a way. 
that it came off as deepening the minimum requirements, which immediately turns to, if I've met the minimum requirements, then I am owed. And it just radically turned. I mean, think of it this way. If all you ever stare at in this world is yourself, what's your focus going to be on? <laughs> I mean, that's essentially the Pharisees' rules. Their good intentions to create rules that keep people from sinning had people watching their own behavior so much. I mean, they're just... They're, it's, it's like, I'm afraid to, I'm watching, I'm watching, oh, you stepped in my circle. You stepped in my circle. It's, it's me, my, I'm watching me so much. I have no other guide. I have no other standard. I have nothing else to look at. And by staring at the Pharisees, the people began to do the very same thing. Jesus changes the conversation. And what's amazing about these statements that he makes, when he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you, only a rabbi with authority could do that. And we talked earlier, you know, about what it meant to be a rabbi with authority, somebody who wasn't just a teacher of the law, somebody who didn't just, you know, reiterate what has already been taught, but somebody who could say, okay, this teaching has been applied this way, but let's go back to the root of the teaching, let's unpack it a little bit, and then reapply it. He didn't change the truth. The truth was still there. What he recognized was the habit of applying it in a particular way had led people away from the intent. Does that make sense? But only a rabbi with authority could do that. Only a rabbi who had had three other rabbis with authority say, you know, you now have authority to do this, could do that. It's a little bit like for us, it's like the difference between a lawyer and a lawmaker. You know, one just has to stay within the guidelines and interpret the laws that are already there, but a lawmaker gets to say, ah, you know what? I don't think we're applying that right anymore. Let's write a different law, or let's tweak that law, or let's fix it, or let's amend that law. Follow me? That's what Jesus is doing here. When he says, you have heard it said, and you've learned to practice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, he changes it. And he moves the conversation from saying, how was I injured? How was I harmed? He moves the dial from that over to how do we demonstrate the bigness and the blessing of God in the midst of loss, in the midst of broken expectations, in the midst of situations that don't go our way? Just changes the conversation. And when he does that, what does he focus us back on? How, how can you be reconciled to somebody that you feel did you wrong unless you realize there is a bigger story at play? One that is more important than this little bump in the road between the two of you. One that is so important that the two of you must work this out in order to be able to live the fullness of that story. And Jesus pulls him back from that, that whole way of living and says, look, it's not about you've been wronged and you get to extract justice. Justice is for God to take care of. Your focus needs to be on being reconciled to one another. How do you, how do you take the fact that your God is bigger than this entire situation, this entire drama between you and so-and-so? How do you take that, that God is bigger, and bring it into this situation and say, you know what? I get it. George, you know, you dig in the hole. Dude, God owns a cattle on a thousand. He has a thousand hillsides full of pet cattle. 
you know, that, 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 that I mean, he could, he, it's like hermit crabs and goldfish, you know, he could, he could just give me one. I get that. You can't. You don't have any cattle. You got a hole with my cow in it. <laughs> and, and I don't want it back. But it just changes the conversation because now I'm not looking at George and saying, my justice must come from you. He says, my justice comes from the Lord. My supply comes from the Lord. My resources, my ability to survive and face and thrive in whatever opportunities in front of me comes from the Lord. And so this is just a bump in the road. How do we work it out? Because somehow you and I being in community, George, is more important to the bigger picture than stopping to fight over a cow. That makes sense to us up here. It doesn't always make sense to us here in our heart. It makes sense in our minds when we think about it, when we pull back and we actually take a moment, we take that beat, we take that pause. It doesn't always make sense in the moment in our hearts because we respond first to the ouch. We respond first to the me, to the feel. And it's not until we pause and we say, wait a minute, what's the real motive? What's the real objective? Jesus puts our focus back on the fact that God owns it all. And everything he has is ours. And if that's true, then the idea that we need to demand an eye for an eye is not necessary. It moves us beyond the idea of fairness into consistency. It moves us from minimum requirement to maximum potential. What's the greatest opportunity that could come from my cow falling in a pit? Hey, George, you didn't mean to do that. Yeah, cow's really valuable. Um, you know, we'll work something out. But in the meantime, let's not, not, let's not let the meat go to waste. Can we use your pit to make a barbecue? And invite the neighbors and show our neighbors that out of an unintended harm that you've inflicted on me, we're going to celebrate because it gives us the opportunity to come closer than maybe we've been. So that the next time you're digging a hole, you're not digging it by yourself without any cones around it so that people know not to fall in. You see, you see how it shifts the thinking. When we begin to move away from this idea of minimum requirement, I've been offended, to maximum potential. What can we do with this? And I get it. I get it. Sometimes the people that, 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 that do things to us or things that happen between, we either don't know them or we, or we have a history with them. And so it's not easy to think about that. It's, not, it's more easy to think about what you owe me because I've been hurt. And that's the moment where Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 you have got to get your eyes up. Because if your eyes are still on that person, if your eyes are still on you, you're not going to come up with a solution that is good either between the two of you or for the broader community. You have got to start to look around and say, God, what can you do with this situation? We have to take that beat, have to take that pause and say, before I demand what I'm owed, I'm going to lay that aside, and I'm going to dig deeper in the pot. I'm going to go for the meat and potatoes. What can we do with this? 
God, I know you can do something with this. Paul picks up on this very thinking in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, when he says, he's writing to the Gentile church in Rome, and he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with, come on, with enthusiasm. I know it's raining. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, who's good? There's, I mean, Jesus himself said there's only one who is good, and that is we need to look to him to establish the good. That brings us to point number three. The resources of God exceed the potential of my needs. This is something, you know, there's, there's no amount of teaching that I can do to convince you of this. It's not my job to convince you of this. I can't. Okay, all I can do is state it, and I state it as a fact, not because I've you know been caught up to heaven and I somehow seen all the you know it. it, I state it because God Himself has said it. And if we're going to say we believe in God and we believe in His Word, this is a promise. This is a promise from Him, and if we need validation of that promise, stop looking at all the things that humanity makes and being wowed by them, and take a look out the back windows here at the mountains that God carved with His voice. He didn't even use His hand. You and I, He made with His hands, fashioned us together. And yet, we're, we're, we're caught up in the idea of, I've got to extract my justice from you. No. If anything, the person that you're angry at, the person you're looking at, is an example to you that God has so much more to meet that need than what you can extract out of that person. He does. I think it's with good cause when Paul later says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities and the powers of this dark world. We must put on the full armor of God so when we deal with each other, we are dealing with each other out of the focus and the intention of God and his love and grace for each one of us, the value that he sees in each one of us, not the value we get to extract from one another. That's no way to live. Some of, you, some of you have tried that, and you know. It only gets you so far. You can't make up for your own deficiencies by trying to consume those around you. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The hardest part, I think, though, is taking our eyes off of vengeance. Because we can, get the, we can get the idea that God has more and he can meet the need. We can get the idea that, that, that it's not about what I can extract from you. We can get those ideas, but the hard part is getting past vengeance. That when we've been so wronged, so wounded, that something's got to happen. You know those expressions, nobody picks up stones unless they plan to. I'm glad you guys know that one. Nobody picks up a stone unless they plan to throw it. Nobody balls their fist unless they intend to. 
it's so hard to open our hand back up when we've been wronged. But we have examples we can look to. We have people who've shared their story and they give us insight. I'm thinking of the, the Amish families and the shooter just a few years ago down in Lancaster and how they opened up their homes to the family of the shooters, to the family of the shooter. And they sought reconciliation. These were their kids that were killed. I think of the story of Debbie Morris, and if you haven't read her story, it's worth looking it up. Go, go find the book, Forgiving the Dead Man Walking. Robert Willie was the, 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 the man who the, the movie Dead Man Walking was made, out of, made from, and although Debbie Morris never appears in the movie, she was actually one of the primary witnesses that helped get him convicted. And later, in years later, she wrote a book called Forgiving the Dead Man Walking, and it tells the story of her journey that seeing justice beginning to be applied to him was not helping her recover. The, the justice that was being extracted from him by our justice system was not compensating for the, the wounds and the fear and the hurt and the terror that she had been through. And it shares her story of engaging the, the, the woman who was working with Robert Willie in the prison system and how she brought, finally came to the, the point where she could say, God, I forgive him. And a lot, of, a lot is made about forgiveness in the sense that, well, it sets you free. That's true. It's so true. But that's minimum requirement thinking. Honestly, when I'm, when I'm counseling somebody through crisis and I say, you know, eventually we need to talk about forgiveness because it's about your freedom, that's minimum requirement. I just want to get them to a healthy place. I want to get them to a point where they can start to look at the situation a little bit differently. And the first place we have to go is like, you need to unhitch yourself from this person and from trying to extract vengeance from them because that's not going to do you any good. But that's minimum requirement. And what she started to wrestle through was not the minimum requirement. She started to say, what good can come of this? And then she was led to share her story. We have people who have walked the road ahead of us, and they learned what it meant to trust that God's resources, whether, whether they're physical resources, emotional resources, spiritual resources, a community of people around, whatever it is that God chooses, he owns it all. And it's all more capable of meeting that brokenness and meeting that need than anything we can extract out of each other. Which brings us right to the last point. As a follower of Jesus, I'm invited, I am invited to invite others to their potential that exists in the limitlessness of God. I mean, let's get, the, let's get the mission straight. It's just kind of what Jesus is saying. Let's get the mission straight. If you are a follower of, of me, meaning Jesus, then you are dealing with a limitless God, and your first and foremost concern needs to be helping people see how to live in reflection of a limitless God so that they will come to know him and see that he can help them reach their maximum potential, the way he's designed them, the way that he has already planned for them to be able to thrive. But we can't do that if we're thinking with minimum requirement thinking. That one's a little bit more complicated. Did everybody follow me on that one? Just give me a nod. Give me a nod if you got it. Okay. Anybody not get it? It's okay. You can pop your head because I'll, I'll, I'll unpack it differently. 
If you haven't learned by now, I'm like the kaleidoscope guy. You know, you just keep turning the lens and we can, you know, eventually get those little crystals to fall in a pattern. It's like, oh, oh, I see what that is. Anyways. I'm showing my age and bombing on a joke at the same time. That's this is awesome. So if you go back to Deuteronomy 32, something is very clear. God says, vengeance is mine. It is mine to repay. And in this one passage here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus puts our eyes back on the simplicity of that ownership. It's not about us extracting vengeance. It's about us looking and saying, Abba, I've been hurt. Daddy, I need you. I need you to kiss the boo-boo so that I can do what I know you need done here. And if there's something you need to deal with them on, I trust you, God. If it's vengeance, it's vengeance. If they are evil and you need to stop them, I trust you. If it is not a matter of evil and it is simply a matter of them maturing, I trust you. And if I have a part in that, Daddy, help me do it. That is the hardest, well, it's one of the hardest things you will ever do. And you say, okay, so if it's so hard, why would I do it? Because if you don't, it's all about you. And you will only ever see what you can accomplish. But if you open up to the limitlessness of God, his ability to step into whatever wound, whatever hurt, whatever, whatever terror has been done to you, let him heal. Let him be the one who gets vengeance where it needs to be and healing and restoration. And your focus is on reconciliation. I'm not saying, you know, if you, if you have somebody who's actually been violent towards you, I'm not saying go be friends with that person because trust, when it's broken, must be rebuilt. And if you are not in an equal place, you cannot rebuild trust with someone who is not trustworthy, okay? That's a different discussion. But coming to reconciliation and allowing God to own the vengeance and you to seek the maximum potential God can bring out of that, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, in him, in him, you can do this. Not on your own, in him. So when I ask you this morning, just very simply, as we wrap up, if you're stuck, you're stuck in a place where you want vengeance. You feel you're owed. You, you feel like you've been wounded. You feel like you have a right to something. I just want to give you a moment here in the quiet to say to the Lord, Lord, I'm stuck here. I'm stuck. I need you to help me see what you have, what you can pour into this need, how you can satisfy it, how you can heal it so that I can move forward. I just want to give you that moment. Would you do that with me? Can we, can we pray in that moment? Let's do that.
Father, whenever Jesus changes the script from what we're used to, it can be scary. And there's no wiggle room, which is what makes it scary. But at the same time, there is always a promise attached. There is always a promise attached. God, the promise we're wrestling with today is the promise that you are sufficient. You are absolutely in your fullness, more able to satisfy any brokenness, any need, any lack, any want, any hurt that we've experienced, any place that has us so stuck with anger or bitterness or rage or unforgiveness. Lord, you are so much bigger than all of it, and you perfectly can fulfill and heal and satisfy that situation. But God, we we just want to come to you honest this morning. There are places we're stuck. There are places we are stuck, and we're looking at someone else. We're trying to get the value out of them. We're trying to extract what might make us feel better and feel free, and it's impossible because they can't give us our freedom. Only you can. So we're coming in this moment, Lord. We're going to take just a moment, and we're going to be quiet. And in that quietness, Lord, in our hearts and minds, we're going to lift to you. We're just going to think it. We're going to focus on it, that place where we're stuck. And God, I trust you. You're going to see it. You're going to hear it. You're going to lead us forward in it. Here, Lord, right now in this moment, the areas where we're stuck. Thank you for hearing and seeing. For some of us, it was a picture. For some of us, it was a name. For some of it was a situation. Some of it was a memory. Lord, you saw it all. You saw all of it. God, in the name of Jesus, I trust you that you are working in that situation, both in past and present. We know, God, you were there. We know that by your sovereignty, you, are, you were working there and you're continuing to work it through here. Forgive us, God, where we have been out of alignment. We haven't been looking. We haven't been, we haven't been trusting. We haven't come to you for the healing that we need. So, God, draw us into you. We know your arms are open. Help us to walk towards you in that moment, with that moment fixed in our mind. To see you standing next to us in that moment, experiencing the hurt, experiencing the frustration, experiencing the pain. And embracing us. Help us, God, to have an awareness that you are, you've got your arm around our back and under our other arm and just lifting us up and helping us take the next step. That you, God, are sufficient. You can fulfill and satisfy and heal. We trust you, Jesus, as we take that step, that you will lift our eyes up. And I pray, Father, right now, you would say to all of us, in our minds, and in our hearts, you would help us be aware of the fact that you're lifting our eyes to say, look out there. Look what I can do with this. Look what I can do. Father, set before us 
the vision, the understanding, the confidence, and the certainty in you that you are calling us and you will walk with us to our maximum potential and that you're also going to give us the ability to help others, even those who wound us, the opportunity to reach their maximum potential. We lay aside in the name of Jesus, we lay aside minimum requirement thinking and lifting up our rights and what we're owed. We lay it aside and we say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, help me to have my eyes and my heart and my, fi- my, my attitude, everything fixed on the maximum potential that you have called me to. doesn't matter what that is, but the maximum potential. And Lord, I will trust you to walk me through it. I will trust you to walk me in it. I will trust you to lift me up when I'm falling around in it. I will trust you to make my feet sure and secure each step of the way. And we will give you the honor and the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.